This is podcast 152, entitled Increase of Affection. And if you'll give me just a few minutes to kind of work up to my central point, which is how is it possible for love to be increased? Which is to say, how is it possible for us in facing our actuality and reality of mortality, our uh, death and life of existence, actually increase in love for that which is passing away and for people and selves who are passing away. Because the question that I give a lot of uh, thought to these days is the whole question of what does it actually mean to love disinterestedly as opposed to the usual thing, which is to love somebody on account of for what they do for me. Please don't die, honey. Please don't leave me. Please don't die, honey. Whatever. Please. Oh, God. That's not what we mean by love. And I'm thinking quite a bit about the possibility of, the hope of, and the existence of disinterested love. Now, I began with um, what is just a masterpiece of 20th century pop, which is Leslie Gore's single, She's a Fool, which is so true and reflect such an actual understanding, the people that wrote that song and produced it, and then the voice that sang it so perfectly, Leslie Gore, that shows such an insight into women and men and the kind of one-upsmanship and complete um, expediency and self-serving that a woman is just as capable of in her way as a man is capable of in his way. This wonderful song, which by the way is a perfect instance of the 
of a non-dissociated performance. Uh, Leslie Gore, when she began her career with It's My Party, I think she was not more than 16 or 17 years old. I do know that she was a, uh, a junior in high school. And this brilliant singer had a completely engaged affect in which she completely sang as if she believed the song. I think she did. I think she was young enough to completely identify with the sentiment of the song and give it this tremendous punch that so many of her songs have. They are completely contrary to all sorts of modern ideas, but it is her undissociated because the older you get, and in some ways it's important to dissociate from yourself. But her lack of association or her her, um, lack of dissociation, her undissociativeness in a song like She's a Fool is is absolutely wonderful because it it is a complete... um, perfect gem of absolutely convinced feeling. She's a fool. And I um, happen to love the song, but I also know that what it says is um, entirely um, in the uh, area of uh, male-female differentiatedness, which I actually think is very powerful and very true, but nonetheless is utterly and completely in the world that is passing away. And all the talk of gender differences or uh, gender similarities, however you want to put it. All the talk about identities or lack of identities is ultimately, actually lack of identities is not, is ultimately superannuated by death and by the uh, near-death experience I was talking about earlier and about which I've uh, written my book, which trolls, trolls through, trolls through, trolls the religions of the world, including some odd and unusual ones, for possible help to the person who's in the process of immediately and urgently and imminently dying. Now, this kind of music, which I just worship, is nonetheless um, put into retirement by the situation I've described. And at the end of the podcast, we're going to hear a kind of male... um, um, a, a classic male in- instance of male thinking that is just pure and perfect pop. And that will come at the very end of the podcast by a group uh, wonderfully entitled Every Mother's Son. Now, the point I'm making is that for love to become disinterested and to actually become the kind of love we think of as uh, we ponder um, Christ's very um, stunning expression, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And his ability to completely transcend um, gender and ethnic boundaries and all the different kinds of separation wires between groups and people and ethnicities and genders and types and expressions and um, you name it, is rooted in a view which ultimately sees uh, all um, human life, whether it's male, female, Leslie Gore, every mother's son, speaking symbolically, as ultimately rendered um, null and void by the universality of that which is common to everyone, which is being, and the need for mercy and forgiveness, which um, puts everything else in the shade. Now, the text for this um, capiche, the text for the podcast is actually a, uh, 
a brief um, segment of Christopher Isherwood's diary entry for August the 3rd, 1967. Isherwood, you cannot get away from these diaries. They are fabulous. And because he was so in touch with the truth, he truly believed that you have to tell the truth, that he couldn't help himself. He was just given as a person to speak, at least in his diaries, as he really saw it. And whenever you're in touch with the truth, you have access to God. By definition, if you are actually connecting with what is with the truth about anything, whether it's the hypostatic union or whether it's um, the square root of the hypotenuse or, or whether it's the third law of thermodynamics or whether it's the kind of person you actually are and have become. Whenever you're in touch with the truth, it's like it's, a, it's like it's an automatic crystal bridge, crystal ship. It's an automatic crystal ship instantaneously to God because God is all truth and all realities. But, and most of us are not in touch at all most of the time with that which is uh, true, even about ourselves. A friend of mine is constantly asking me to uh, – he always wants um, – to have soup at a very delicious uh, restaurant which specializes in soup. But every time we go there, he never has soup. He always has something else. And I almost wanted to say, but then why do you always talk about having soup? Now, I don't think this lovely man has the slightest idea <clears throat> that he is inconsistent. But who cares? You know, Who cares if you're consistent or inconsistent? But we are all constantly saying things and expressing things and ranting about things and um, making, having views and uh, judgments and uh, ideas about things that are really all the bears of some ego-driven kind of rationalization that is not actually true. And the moment we say, you know, look, this is who I am. This is what I think. No matter how negative it is, we are in touch with God. Now, um, Isherwood had this coming out of him like um, sweat. I mean, it, it just was who he was. And that's why his novels are really so very fine, including A Single Man, in my opinion. Now, August 3rd, 1967. We're now going to talk about, in light of the fact that the imminence of death and the actual fact that, that our reality, our being, is not our false self-ego, competitive, defended, rationalizing, angry, libidinal, making distinctions, judging, criticizing, condemnatory person that we think we are, uh, assuming that um, that uh, that... Um, it becomes sort of gets put over on the shelf when you're dying. We see a brilliant instance of this in um, Isherwood, um, his visit to Gerald Hurd on August the 3rd, 67. He went with uh, his partner, Don Bashardi or Bacardi. And um, this is what Isherwood wrote. Gerald is very, but by the way, Hurd had had, I think, three or four strokes uh, prior to this time and was um, really uh, not at all the man he had been in his prime, and he was dying. Gerald is very weak now and speaks in a faint voice, though his articulation is fairly good, writes Isherwood. Our presence at his bedside seemed to amuse him. I felt that we were part of a profound metaphysical joke. The joke was that we were within Maya, and therefore absurd, but at the same time absorbingly interesting to him. I'm paraphrasing what I think he said because I couldn't understand all the words. Gerald added quite clearly, It doesn't alter one's affection. Indeed, it increases it. We both felt his affection strongly. Now, let me uh, exegete that for a second. 
uh, Isherwood understands that Hurd, who had spent his entire life, um, almost his entire life, thinking about and actually embodying these uh, great questions of the self, God, who we are, what is truth, and was doing it from a kind of um, highly assimilated uh, Christian. His father was a clergyman, wouldn't you know, of the Church of England, and uh, an evangelical clergyman or low church clergyman. I actually had been to the church where his father was the rector. And I uh, knew a bloke, a man, a good man, who became the rector of that parish in Bath. Um, but Gerald Hurd um, uh, felt at this point, as he was on his way out, he felt, to quote Isherwood, that we, that is Don and Chris, were part of a profound metaphysical joke. The joke was that we were within Maya and therefore absurd. Now, that's uh, very uh, important. Uh, the joke was, Maya is, um, uh, you know, one of these words from the East, that uh, from the Hindu tradition, I think, <clears throat> but I know it's also in the Buddhist tradition, that uh, is uh, simply a way of saying the world, as Christians would say it. That is, the world which is deceiving, deceitful, illusory, um, and, and deluding, and causing illusion in all of its... Um, temporary inhabitants. It is more like, you might call it, almost the principle that is the world, underlies the world, permeates and pervades the world. And it is a uh, situation in which literally everything that the um, kind of the person that I think I am, uh, Paul Zal, uh, thinks he's doing is within Maya and therefore absurd. And this is why, you know, when you have a kind of wake-up call, which is often through a crisis or a disaster or a, a, a disease, um, it comes in many forms, but it's always extreme because you otherwise you just you're 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 sort of grasping false being Paul Zahl, the driver of your life would just continue to be in charge because he or she doesn't really want anything to do with this teaching because it it, it undoes his or her uh, sovereignty. The joke was that we were within Maya, so that is why everything you do, your reaction to your job or your lack of um, uh, fulfillment in your job, your response, your, your, your all, the way you defend yourself with your wife, the person you live with, uh, this man over here, the way you are constantly building up pictures of yourself that are entirely untrue from the standpoint of what everybody else sees, your self-understanding, your explanations, your apologies, your excuses, all the things you say, <clears throat> plus the fact that everything you do ultimately has a kind of profound kind of meaninglessness to it. When you come to the end of the day and just ask men who have worked all their lives in a career almost none of them when it comes down to it are not convinced at an inward level and I have spoken to thousands of such people that that the whole thing was kind of a strange dream of 30 or 40 years what in the world was all those years about you know William Hale White aka Mark Rutherford was talking to his wonderful um, the woman he married after his first wife died and she was I think 40 years younger maybe more than he and they were walking by I think the Admiralty building one of the great buildings in Whitehall and there he I was in it not long ago actually and he was um, walking with her and he'd worked there for like 40 years in the Admiralty uh, I think as a kind of contracting agent for uh, contracts for naval vessels and as he was walking by uh, he said to this lovely woman Dorothy Hara Smith, and he said to her, now, see that little door over there? That was the door I went in every single day of my life for 40 years. And then he says, uh, I didn't like it. 
his entire rumination upon his job, which, by the way, he never refers to anywhere in his literature. You won't find him referring to it almost anywhere except in the way I've just referred to it in his six great novels and in his multitudinous uh, remains and uh, journals. <clears throat> he, um, he never refers to what he actually did from eight to six, if you count the commute, every single day of his life. And he just said to her in one sentence, I didn't really like it. Well, um, the, the whole thing is Maya, uh, and you get to a point, and I think especially people in the professions, men, and then with women, I think when your children grow up, if you have children, um, God help you if you do, uh, but if you have children and you've, they, they are kind of your secondary identity, they're absolutely everything, and then they, they leave because just they separate to begin their own lives, God willing, and you can, they, they may love you, and they may be in touch with you all the time and very much value what you think, but nevertheless, they're not there anymore. They're not there to take care of every single second of the day. And so, and sometimes they leave you when they slam the door. And that's when women run into the same sense of absurdity and um, unbelievable uh, futility. What was I doing all these years that she should treat me this way or he should treat me this way? Well, it's just, that's the same way that William Hale White felt about his particular household god, personal god, his work, because uh, I didn't really like it. Um, but this is what's so interesting. Uh, if it's all absurd, I mean, in other words, if everybody and all human activities and everything we do, child rearing, action, work, um, all the different things that we find ourselves uh, filling our time with, which is largely symbolic e e even at best. But if you look at a backup on it and you say, my gosh, you know, it's it, it, the whole thing is absurd. Well, in a way, that that takes away all distinctions because you're, you're no longer having you, you can't judge one guy as opposed to another guy. You can't say about one of your old friends. Well, he he blew his life in this particular way. He was too involved in money or he thought that the answer to his life was really an acquisition. But that guy over there, he blew his life because he thought the answer was in women or getting the right woman. And, you know, he left a trail of three wives or whatever it is and not even sure he's happy with the new one he has, you know. Um, and, and his or she thought her, you know, her, her thing was her teenage son, which she was or her autistic child or her needy one that she thought her life's work was to help and save. And then now, you know, given everything we know that's happened, uh, it, 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 you don't anymore make judgments and distinctions based upon some quantitative uh, experience that some person you're looking at or thinking about or criticizing had. There are no distinctions, to quote St. Paul and the uh, Isaiah, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one, not one, who is righteous. That is the Christian-specific New Testament version of saying the same thing. The joke was that... Isherwood writes of heard, the joke was that we were within Maya and therefore absurd. And if you can see this, if you can see that every single time you get in the car, every single trip you take to the grocery store, the giant eagle in Pittsburgh or the Publix in Florida or Bravo, which we go to here, or, um, you know, Red Apple or Safeway or whatever it is, uh, when you realize that the whole is absurd, then he writes... Um, he added quite clearly this fact that it's all Maya and all absurd, which is really what people often find out when they die. He added quite clearly, it doesn't alter one's affections. Indeed, it increases them. And that's why the, this is called increase of affection. Now, I started out with um, Leslie Gore's timeless, brilliant, probing, undissociated uh, work of art, popular art. She's 
a fool. And we'll close with another kind of uh, slightly more frivolous, but not much, uh, by every mother's son. Um, to simply say, these things are very important. These views of men and women that are come through these songs with truth, as opposed to sort of current attitudes, which are often in denial of truth. They they, they don't they won't let people be who they are. Um, they won't let men and women men be who they are. You know that other song by Leslie Gore. That's the way boys are. You listen to it, and boy, is it true. But you know you can't say it now. That's the way she she was a top twenty single. I remember listening to it in the day, uh, and. Um, but nevertheless, even if it were, even if it's true and what people think today is not true, or even if it's not true and people think today, what people think today is true, it's it's not important because actually, all cats are gray in the dark. Now let's talk about that. That's an old aphorism you've heard before. All cats are gray in the dark, which is a proverb I always heard in connection with German theology. And the way it was explained to me was that um, that the world says that if you turn down the lights, all cats look gray in the dark. In other words, you, there's no distinction between this cat and that cat, this color eye, that color eye, this color fur, that color fur, this size paw, that size paw, this kind of tail, that kind of tail. Because in the dark, in, in the dark, they all look gray. You can't tell the difference between different cats, As which is to say, at a certain kind of moment, everything looks the same. And I was... Uh, strongly impressed that that was not a Christian statement, that uh, that was to deny the individual reality of the actual individual person uh, or persons or cats, as the case may be, that Christ came to defend and argue for. And I disagree with that. I think that's not the, actually what I was taught was a mistake, because I would say as soon as you say that all cats are gray in the dark, the dark being the omnipresence and universal impact of your imminent death, no matter what, whether you're 15 or whether you're 85, your imminent death. And remember that I'm not talking out of my hat here. This is the way the Puritans, if you're interested, this is the way um, the, the Puritans in America taught their children. And, you know, part of us says, ugh, but if you're a, a, a christening and a, a christening and listening, um, know that uh, many of the people you admire very deeply, the sort of John Berridge's and William Gurnall's and um, um, Henry, um, um, Samuel Rutherford's of this world actually taught that, that the moment you realize that death is imminent, which it is by definition, even if you're not sick, then uh, all human relationships become altered by that fact. They, in fact, as Heard would say, he says, it doesn't alter my affection, it increases it. Why is that? Because it doesn't make my affection dependent on any quality that is intrinsic or inherent in you. It doesn't make me judge you the less because you let me down because of this particular character fault that you have, or she lets me down because of that particular character fault or that particular form of denial that she's involved in, or this particular acting out that he over there seems to gravitate towards while she over here gravitates towards another particular kind of acting out, or he's just got a terrible temple, temper, but she over here really is a quiet alcoholic and, and is really removed and backed away from everything. Uh, these are all the kinds of of uh, this takes away when you realize that, to quote Isherwood on Herd again, the joke was that we were within Maya and therefore absurd. Well, if we're all absurd, then it is a joke. And at the same time, absorbingly interesting to him, I thought I, I'm not quite where Gerald was, apparently, but um, 
I do know that it can increase affection because what it does first, it immediately stops decreases of infection uh, of affection. As soon as you see everyone in Maya and all in the absurd, you no longer have de- you don't um, rate people according to how much affection today they may deserve in terms of the judging ego that is you. Paul Zoll thinks that da 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 da, or she thinks about Paul Zoll da 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 in comparison with da 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 da, or this or that another thing, person, and it immediately takes away the possibility of of, of a negative. Uh, uh, of going down a notch, uh, but also um, it, 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 so it stabilizes the whole thing. We used to say the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Well, you see, this is all another way of saying what of Christians mean when they describe a situation in which everyone is equal, because in light of the love of God, which is not deserved, it has nothing to do with merit at all. One way love, to quote David Zoll, to quote Tully and Tavigian, to quote, uh, you know, something that I have really believed all my life. Uh, if it's one-way love and I don't contribute a darn thing to it, well, then, of course, uh, all cats are gray in the dark, and this is all absurd. Let's just say it a little more strongly than often Christian theology does. The joke was that we were the, within Maya. We are within illusion, delusion, not in reality, and therefore we are absurd. And yet it doesn't alter one's affection. Indeed, it increases it. I, I haven't quite gotten there yet. I'm, I'm sort of counting on this to help me increase my affection, because I find that as I get to a certain point in my life, I do lose affection for a lot of people who I worked alongside with or who I was with when I felt more deeply than ever from the current perspective, in hinzicht of the current perspective. Looking back on it, I see myself as in, in Maya, in what they sometimes call samsara, or just in this world, or in a false view of myself and this world in relationship to God, man, and, and nature. And I look back and I, I, I see myself having made so many mistakes, and therefore I put everybody I ever worked with or was with almost in that category. So I find myself, you know, up-chucking as I look back on parts of my life. I just want to up-chuck. And that's me primarily and all the attendant persons of me. And uh, so what I'm really asking here very much is the, um, the, uh, an increase of affection. Give me some affection. What is that song? It's a, there's a Dave Mason song. I think he says, give me some affection. I'm sure that's in a Dave Mason song. Yes, it's called Give Me Some Affection. It's a wonderful song by Dave Mason. Shoot, I wish I uh, had it for this podcast, but I've got something even better because it's more primal. But give me some affection. Uh, And I really uh, see that in the same way that I would like affection to the extent that I am caught up in the absurd. Uh, All the people that I've known, loved, and may love, and don't even know, and cannot yet have known, they all are, uh, as it were, because they're unworthy of disaffection, they are also worthy of affection. Because they're all exactly where I've been, where I am, and they will all ultimately end up in some form of retrospective analysis, which causes them to say, oh my gosh. You know, I was telling you about this uh, person that I knew about uh, out in uh, Colorado. I'm almost finished. <clears throat> it was a very, very famous uh, politician in Colorado. I mean, he was the kingmaker of Colorado. He was not a person that was known nationally so much as the kind of person who, he was the, he was the godfather of, uh, I believe, of the Democratic Party in Colorado. And anyone who ever wanted to get ahead had to uh, had to sort of come through his say-so. Uh, there's a character in the, the Cousins novel, The Just and the Unjust, who functions this way. He's a party functionary in the local county where the just and the unjust by cousins occurs. <clears throat> and everybody <clears throat> for any kind of position in elected politics has to sort of go through his his uh, 
his own uh, okay. And this man was very, very, he was the kingmaker, the powerful person, apparently, in sort of local state politics in Colorado. But he then got a diagnosis. I think it was pancreatic cancer, but I may have that wrong. But he got a diagnosis in which he, he basically understood that he had um, a very short time to live. And just suddenly, bang, all the, the shelter came to. That is, the the, uh, the curtains came down 100%. The, like somebody, you know, in England or in Northern Ireland, when someone was killed in World War I, uh, you could always tell when they'd lost a son uh, at the front in 1916 because the curtains would all go down, black curtains would all go down, and no one entered the house because they weren't to be because they were in private grief, and it was like an iron door. Well, an iron door went down in this man. What his religion was, I don't know, but everything stopped. He didn't want to talk about it, didn't want to think about it, didn't want to mention it, didn't want to say goodbye to anybody. Suddenly, from absolute involvement to zebra. Now, that's what happens. Uh, But you see, um, what I'm saying is the next phase of that, or if you had a little more time, you'd want to sort of re-ingest all those you've loved, you know. Moscow does not believe in tears. Well, yes or no? You'd want to I've loved you so much. You've, you'd want to reinvest your uh, the continuity of your life with a different kind of love. You know, we've got a groovy kind of love. We got a groovy kind of love. That's what we're really looking for. Well, I think that an increase of affection is what we're talking about, and I've decided to play something different at the conclusion. But I hope in one kind of a um, rear view or, you know, um, 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 what's that song by the Allman Brothers, the old blues song? Um, There's only one way out, you know, got to get out the back door. I hope that we've come through the back door to show you that you could increase your love. You, I'm talking, I'm talking about you, you and me. We can increase our love for those whom we perhaps have less love than we did once have. Uh, by means of this understanding that all cats are really gray in the dark of imminent demise and the change of self from false and ego-driven to real and substantial and enduring and lasting. And that might, in fact, serve as a key to increase our affections and create the very thing that this song is about. you 